Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, hi everybody. Um, I'm Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta. So we're really excited to be running these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for a third season. If you've made it onto one of these in the past or have listened to the podcast, you'll know it's a very free flowing conversation and a lot of fun. So for tonight, we're super excited to have Ross Hinter joining us. Um, I met Ross back when I worked for Alberta Trappers Association. And he wowed me from the time I met him with how much information he holds on fur bears, on wildlife management, on everything to do with the outdoors. I've learned a ton from him, not only about the trapping industry in Alberta, but about what sustainability truly means, whether we're talking about our soil, our land, our livestock, or our wildlife. So I'm going to get him to do a little more thorough introduction on his experiences in the topic in a little bit. But until then, I would love it if Steve, if you would be willing to introduce yourself and introduce your thoughts on tonight's topic, and then we'll move over to Ross. Yeah, thanks, Amber. Uh, yeah, Steve Kenyon with Greener Pastures Ranching. Uh, yeah, we've been doing this for a little bit of time now, three three winters, and we got quite a few podcasts. If you want any of the uh, older podcasts, I just put a link in the chat, and uh, you can go back and listen to all of the other ones. The disadvantages to just listening to the podcast is you miss the networking and the after networking networking that goes on here after the show. So uh, feel free to stick around when we're done and uh, enjoy that. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. This is not one of the topics I'm more familiar with, but I'm uh, very intrigued and, and uh, always, always love talking about uh, uh, th- this type of stuff. So um, I will turn it over to Ross for him to introduce himself and the topic. Thank you, Steve. Well, this is great. Huh? It's the first time I can remember doing a program to help people where I, I get to sit at home. So this is uh this is really cool. We've learned a lot over the last few years with this technology. So I spent most of my life in the ranching industry. I worked as a cowboy in the mountains of British Columbia on some of the bigger ranches and then eventually ended up with cattle myself. And so I, that's been my background with the cattle industry. And uh, trapping is just something that came to me at an early time in my life. And uh, I made a link to uh, to a trap. I always think... The world's never been the same since I found a little piece of steel in the ground. And uh, But I have a real deep love for, for animals, wildlife. The combination of them has led me to where I am now, where I I spent the last 30 years trying to help people that are having problems. Um, sometimes it's by trapping and sometimes it's by helping people to discourage predation issues on their, on their ranches and farms and things like that. Sometimes it's uh, a little weasel that's found that it's not too hard to kill chickens, all the way up to a timber wolf pack that uh, is killing livestock and causing a great deal of financial loss. A lot of it here in Alberta has been dealing with uh, our big rodent, the beaver, that's flooded out a lot of crop uh, crop land and things like that. So a couple of two little beaver can get themselves in quite a bit of trouble. So that's been my background. And uh, now as I begin to age, I'm trying to concentrate more on uh, less on the trapping aspect of things in, in uh, teaching courses on trapping and things like that. 
more into helping people, landowners and people, acreage owners, people that are looking after land or just trying to deal with livestock. So what I've learned, uh, just to give you some background on in the livestock industry, the problems with predation issues, I'd like to start with that, often come when people start lambing or calving or and a lot of times, depending on the area, apparently some of you are already started, but a lot of times that starts in March. That's when we used to cow. Uh, we start in March. And by the time that comes, uh, the coyote population has reached its peak or the wolf population, whichever. And then as we start uh, with, the, with the young, we got predation. So... I learned that in order to deal with these issues, I have to start a long time before I'm going to start calving out. And this has been what I've learned with a lot of producers is that when they really need the help from trappers, especially if that's if that's the idea of how they want to manage things, they contact the trapper, say in March or even later, maybe even in April. And the trapper, there's no market value for the fur for the animals then. And so there's no motivation for them to come in and try to help because they're not gonna get a dime for the, for the animals that they catch. And so as with just about all other industries, it really helps if we all understand each other. So if the rancher understands how it works for the, uh, for the trapper, then they can start working together. And to me, that's always the key if you have a really good trapper that can help you with population control, freedom right, yeah, he might be a real asset to you. So I thought we could talk a little bit about some of that tonight. And then I can give you my, my idea on some of the solutions. But I will tell you right up front that um, if you're going to manage livestock or even land, eventually you're going to need help with some type of either problems with, like I said, beaver flooding land or even golf courses are calling. I end, I've been in nine golf courses and it's either to do with beaver or muskrats or coyotes. I've never golfed in my life. So what I have encouraged people to do is to become a trapper themselves. And what that does is I guess it, it people's minds, they run over and they think of some old guy like me, gray haired guy that gnarly old boy that lives out in the bush and just wants to trap all the animals that he can. But in reality, uh, trapping introduces you to a license and an ability to be able to manage any type of animal uh, across a landscape. So maybe we can kick that around a little bit tonight. But that tells you a little bit about myself. And uh, maybe we could start with, uh, you know, where where some of you have seen problems in your area and maybe some of the frustration or maybe some way that I can help you in dealing, whether it's coyotes or, uh, or the big rodent that's flooding land or maybe timber wolves like we have in our area or whatever yes. the you have a story that's probably one of my favorites and it's the ones of the beaver causing issues with the families. Well, when you had come in previously and asked to trap them and then they end up calling you up when it was a last minute resort. Okay. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, well, I'm thinking of the, of the family, the ranch that asked me to come in and, and uh, remove some beaver in the, in the, uh, 
late summer or early fall, and I uh, I went to see them. We uh, discussed a plan, and then they asked me to go and talk to their neighbors who also had beaver problems. And I went to see them as well. Is that the one? Is that the one you're talking about, Amber? Okay, yeah. That what happened with that is that uh, I went I went out to this cattle producer. He was having an enormous problem with beaver, and when I went to see him. We walked across his land. He had a little creek that went through there. And when the cattle or when the beaver first come in, he was really excited. Uh, he told me that because he knew they'd start damming up the waterway. And that was really good because it, it puddled up water during, you know, later on in the season when it dried up. They had some water for their cattle. And here he had these little guys working for him. And he just thought this was a great deal. But uh, beaver are rodents and um, rodents as they are. <laughs> started producing more offspring than he was quite prepared to deal with. So eventually they cut down just about all the deciduous trees along the waterway there and then uh, continued to flood out more and more land so that they could access more and more trees. And what would happen when the high water came in in the spring, uh, the beaver would, the water level would rise up and they would burrow into the banks. And then later on in the season, all of that got washed out. And when the cattle came down to drink, they'd break through some of the holes and they'd bust legs. And, and uh, so things started to go south on them pretty quick. While I was there, I told them, I said, you know, this is really a poor time to, to be managing the beaver. But I said, I could come back in the winter when they're not, they're not nursing their young. And in fairness to them, uh, they're not dependent on their mother's milk. And he said, well, then there's going to be ice everywhere. Nah. How the heck are you going to catch them under the ice? And I said, well, that's why they paid me the big bucks. <laughs> so, which is quite an ironic story. My wife sitting over here beside me, she could tell you that's not actually true. But yes, anyway, so I, he said, yeah, I understand that. That, that makes good sense to me. Maybe you could come back uh, later in the winter and uh, we can remove them. So he told me that the waterway, there was some people that lived there uh, that had bought, they split up one of the quarters of land there. And when they divide a quarter, a quarter's about 160 acres of land. And they divided it into two 80-acre parcels. And some folks from Edmonton, a big city here, had moved out there. And he said, I know they've got beaver over there. He said, won't their beaver move in here and start causing more problems? And I said, most likely they will, yeah. So he said, well, maybe you could talk to them. So I said, sure, I'll. Maybe they'd split the mileage with you. So I went over to see these folks and uh, I drove in and knocked on the door and uh, told them who I was. I was a local trapper. And, uh, well, you, you could have cut the air with a knife. Uh, I'm, I'm not the brightest stick in the pile, but I can even tell when, when uh, there's something really wrong. So I, I looked at them and uh, he said, a trapper on our land? And she said, that day will never come. She said, we bought this land. We've moved out from the city because we want to We want to be with nature. We love nature and we want to be a part of it. That no one will ever be killing animals on our land. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I can see I've upset you. And I said, I, I'm not in the business of trying to catch a whole pile of animals for no reason. It's just that they overpopulate and they do cause problems with flooding. But I said, I can see I've upset you. I'll be on my way. So I took off and felt sorry for myself for the first minute or two and drove away and didn't think any more of it. Two years later, I got a 
just two years, I got a call from a woman uh, that was just frantic. And she said, I got your phone number from a fish and wildlife division. And uh, they said that you're an animal control expert. So now I had a different title. But anyway, so I didn't know who these people were. I just told them I'm really, this isn't a very good time in the spring. Right now is not a, not a great time to be doing this. And I said, I'm working on a project right now with timber wolves that are killing livestock. And uh, it's really needs to be where I center my attention. And they said, she said, well, we're really desperate. Is there any way you would even come and just look at it? So I said, okay, I'll, I'll come out uh, on Monday morning. And I said, but I'll be there early, basically at first light. And she said, that's no problem. We'll be very happy to have you come. So she gave me the legal land description of the farm, and uh, I took off. And as I got closer, I pulled out the county map, and I thought, shoot, I've been down here. I remember. When I turned down the road, and I realized, oh, no, it couldn't be. It couldn't, couldn't be that same place. Well, now as I drove up to the place, they had even cut uh, fence posts. They were bobbing up and down in the water, and the whole landscape was flooded. It was coming right up into their driveway so they actually had to drive through the water so i thought well this will be interesting so i knocked on the door and this time the guy came to the door and he shook my hand with both hands <laughs> and i uh, said we're so thankful that you came and and uh, well now i had trimmed i i shaved and everything you know to try to not to look so old in the springtime i guess they didn't recognize me anyway they i said well I can see you've got quite a problem out there. You've got uh, at least one colony, probably two colonies of beaver. And he said, boy, we're really in a pickle here. This has really caused us a lot of problems. So I said, okay, well, you know, maybe we, I'll come back. Um, just give me a few days you know, uh, to work with Fish and Wildlife on this, and I'll come back, and then we can draw out a management plan of what we want to do. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, they're good little water managers. You know, it's just that they've overpopulated. And she said, I want them out of here. I don't want these things here. I, I never dreamt that they'd cause so much trouble. Well, what had happened was um, on a farm, it's not the same as when they lived in the city. There's, there's a septic tank and a septic field. And when the beaver flood everything, then things don't go away when you flush the toilet. So suddenly everything... <laughs> became a real uh, a real serious problem. So I suddenly something snapped in the back of my head and I, it, it just angered me a little bit, you know, because um, people are so quick to judge when they don't understand. And I'm sure most of you that, you know, you're dealing with livestock or your land base, you realize what I'm talking about. And I don't mean to make fun of people, but I said to her, you know, I guess you guys don't remember me, do you? I was a scruffy-looking fellow with a beard. He was here a couple of years ago, a trapper. And I wanted to talk to you about the beaver back then. And I said, now, you, because your toilet won't flush, now you're mad. And you want them all removed with no regard that the mother will probably have her young, and they're totally dependent on the milk. The babies will start to death when she leaves the lodge. I can't put a sign on my trap that says no females. No one so. Anyway, it's a bit of a bizarre story, I guess, but it, it just illustrates how, how little connected people are. And uh, trappers often get, you know, they get looked at as, as the bad guys, but then in actuality, 
uh, it's generally trappers that are out there trying to help with population control and to bring problems into a manageable situation. So I think some of the things that really impacted me. So when I first joined Alberta Trappers Association, I had no idea what that really meant. Um, I didn't know anything about the industry, nothing like that. And then I went to Ross was doing a course on trapping and I sat in on it and, you know, he was telling me and the group about how, uh, for one, how humane the traps are compared to what they might've been in the past or what they might be in other countries. So Canada's laws are a lot different when it comes to trapping. Um, And then for two, if you really stop and think about it, what happens to wildlife populations that get overpopulated? So those were the two things that really impacted me. And I don't know if you guys in the group here have any questions or, you know, if you know a lot about the trapping industry, but I think that might be something that's worth going into on what that looks like. Steve, I see your mic's unmuted. Yeah, well, my first question is actually going to be to Amber. I, please tell us about your experience skinning a muskrat. We'll avoid that conversation. I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> but I did do it. <laughs> uh, so I had a question for Ross. Um, you mentioned water management. What are the situations where you would want to try to use beavers and, and keep them under manageable control, but use beavers to maybe, you know, bring more water into your land or, or slow down uh, fast flowing water or, you know, manage, manage the runoff from your land. Uh, you know, have you had experience with those sort of scenarios and how do you, how do you decide what's a, what's a bad beaver dam and what's a good beaver dam? Yeah, that's what I've been trying to do actually is that uh, you take the best, the best little, managers of water uh, in the world really and we either love them or hate them and in actuality they're really good and like what you're talking about so yeah um, we've done this in some of the parks with uh, in, uh, what they would call park protected areas and so most people don't want to see anything happen to them so they would rather uh, not see something lethal they just want to be able to utilize them and uh, that's the whole goal. But the, in, I'll give you an example. Like here in Alberta, they are so overpopulated that they're living in ditches. It's absolutely bizarre. There are so many of them. And right now we're going through a drought period over the last couple of years. And so there's less water available to them. So the poor things are having quite a time. And as I said, they're having to live in the ditches. So in that type of a situation, it's difficult to try to manage them without having to use lethal means because you can't relocate them somewhere. There's no place to take them where there isn't already beaver. And they're a territorial species and they take that very seriously. So I'm sure you know what that means, but in case you don't, when they're territorial, it means they will not welcome any other beaver outside of their colony. If they, if one comes into their territory, they will attack them, kill them on site. And if they, they don't kill each other uh, from the attack. They generally die from the wounds from from fighting. They end up with infections and uh, all kinds of, it's quite bizarre how aggressive they are. So if we want to have beaver in, and in many areas, that's what they're trying to do, and they're doing really well. But what's happening is some of them don't understand that you will have to trap some of them off. 
So I can give you an example. If you have two beaver and uh, generally um, a mating couple, they mate for life. And uh, if nothing happens to one of them, they, uh, they normally have one litter a year. So the female has four teats, so she can comfortably and usually be successful nursing four young. So if you look at that, four young once a year, two beaver, the math was already done in the United States. One of the joint projects that we did with the United States on this, it was really cool. But two beaver left with no predation, natural predators on them, will produce uh, just over 610 offspring in a 10-year cycle. That's just two beaver. So that, that gives you some idea of what they're capable of. So I guess long story here, if you're going to bring beaver in to manage an area, you do have to accept that you're gonna to have to deal with population because you can't get two beaver to come in and not have any young. And as soon as they have young, uh, everything starts to change. So Nathan, in answer to your question, it is doable. But the person that's setting this up or the people that are going to manage this have to find a place to put that in their, in their management plan when, and we can talk about that if we want to go further on it, but when are we going to trap and how are we going to do this? And yeah, you can live trap them. You can relocate them. If you're, if you're doing well and you have people that would like to try that, you may have a natural system there because beaver are not hard to live trap. And then you could take some of the offspring that, that, that you need to move out of there and actually uh, introduce them to another area. But here, that doesn't work. And we can't even get a permit from Fish and Wildlife if we want to reintroduce beaver. They, as soon as they hear that we're trying to reintroduce them, they say, don't you dare bring your problems to us into this area. So it, I guess what I'm saying is, is it really depends on what you've got in your particular area. And if you have another suitable place, then yes, you can live trap those and they can be relocated. I can add a little bit to that, Nathan. I think a, a big factor that depends on whether people like beavers in the area or they don't like them in the area is, is how flat is your land, right? If you've got some really flat land and the beavers start backing something up, it can cover a lot of acres. Whereas if you've got really hilly land, they can back up a you know a little creek somewhere, and all of a sudden they're they're it's getting deeper, not wider. Um, we actually took a piece of property we had where the beavers were in. I was kind of fighting with the county for a number of years because they would blow beaver dams just for entertainment. They would actually bring the uh, uh, county egg tours around, and they would blow a beaver dam just to to watch it blow. And you know I liked having them there because we needed the water. We're, we're we have trouble with water in our area. Uh, so one, uh, a few years back, I actually snuck down, it's not a, a full pledged Creek, so I, I shouldn't get in too much trouble for saying this, but I went down in and I, I tried to kind of repair an old beaver dam because the beaver beavers were gone long ago and I just needed a spot for water. So I kind of repaired this beaver dam where it blew through a little bit, just to back up a bit of water. And within a year, a family of beavers moved back in and it's in the ideal spot because the banks in that spot probably 50, 60, 70 feet high, right? He can work for years backing up, building that dam taller and taller and taller. And all it's going to do is back it up more and give me more water. It's not going to, you know, spread out in, in width. So 
in the right spot, I mean, that beaver dam can be a great thing in the dry years. Like when we had the drought, uh, three quarters of land, the only spot that I had water left was where we repaired that beaver dam uh, because of that. So I'm, I'm grateful to them, but I also have very hilly land. I know there's places where you got flat land, they start backing something up. Um, you can cover a lot of land. So what I kind of look at is what is the percentage of land that they're taking away from you? Okay, is it is it 4% or 10% or 50%, right? At 50%, I'm going to have probably a concern. But at 10%, you know what? When that drought hits, I'm going to be grateful that I have that 10% of my land underwater. Uh, so that's kind of you know the, the positive side to it. But again, it depends on you know whether you're trying to get rid of them or you're you're trying to encourage them to come in. It kind of depends on your environment for sure. I think the thing that really got me when I first started learning about all of this, and especially from you, Ross, was when you really stop to think about what happens when wildlife become overpopulated, right? And not just the effect that it has on us on the landscape, but let's say using Steve's example, they've, you know, flooded more than 50% of the land. Well, eventually they're going to get to the point where they're going to starve. They're going to have to move into other animals territory and what's going to happen to them at that point. And I think that that, that really just shifted my thinking on sustainability and on trapping and what that actually means and why we might need to do it. I mean, we see that with our deer populations too. We've removed a lot of the wolves, which mean that there aren't really predators for a lot of the other animals that would happen. And if those deer get overpopulated, they get diseased and they die. And I think that all of that kind of ties in. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Ross, before we move over to Lynn. I guess from my take of things in our district, in the boreal region, uh, just to give you some idea, 65% of juveniles, wild animals, will be dead before they're a year old. 65%. That's astounding. So some species is even more. If we look at the little muskrat that seems to get themselves into a lot of trouble, but they're a real interesting little species. 85% of them, now these are not my statistics, you can look this up, but 85% of beaver will not live to be a year old. So really depending on the species. Now, when we, we take that back to, uh, I just want to finish this part with beaver. Um, when we take that to beaver, there's two main things that affect us when we look after land areas or land mass. The flooding is one, uh, and in some cases, like Steve just mentioned, that can be a huge one. But the other one is the, their instinct to store food for the winter is uh, generally they're going to take deciduous growth. So the deciduous trees get hammered and out. Just to give you some background, and again, you can look this up. These are not my statistics. The average beaver colony in our North Country, anyway, will take per colony. Now, a colony consists of the group family. It could be two that have just started or just going to mate up. Or it could be a family that has the two breeding couple, two, uh, four kits from this spring, four yearlings because they're still there, and then some two-year-olds because they usually don't become sexually active until after their second year. So they stay together in a colony. So you could have 12, even 14 in one colony. So they take, statistically, they take the average colony, will take a 1,000 trees 
per colony per year. So that's that's not all those great big trees that you see from the side of the road. Some of them are only big around as my finger. But nevertheless, that's uh, that's the numbers that they use. So a big colony will take substantially more and a small colony will take a lot less, but approximately a thousand trees. And so depending on your land base, not only do you need to consider how much water they're going to take up, but can you afford to allow them to continue to take too many of those trees? So when you look at it, for, let me put it to you this way. If you've got animals in a pen and you're moving them from pen to pen and they're taking more than they should be taking, you know, it's going to affect the root structure. And how long is it going to take for that to rejuvenate before you can use it again? Well, with trees, it's even longer. So beaver get into so much trouble, not because they cut down trees, but because nobody does anything until they've wiped out so many trees and so much of an area that it's going to take years of rest before it can do them. Anyway, I just wanted to add that little bit to it because I'm not trying to complicate it, but these are, these are things we have to consider. Ross, it's kind of a lot of different environments or ecosystems have the very similar problems, but they don't stand out as much, right? When in the cattle industry, we, we get flies, Right. And all of a sudden this pest, this pesty fly is in the way. Well, the system is out of balance. It doesn't have its predator. So the cowbirds are gone or the dragonflies are gone or you have too many mosquitoes. It's because the predator is gone. Right. In this case, the little pest that is the problem is the beaver because we've taken away their predator. Right. We've scared away the predators over the years and now they can reproduce and the, the, the system is favoring them. So they get outnumbered. So we need to be able to manage them because we've, you know, taken an ecosystem and put it out of balance. If all the predators came back in, that would be doing the balance for us, right? Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's the whole point. Yeah, you brought out, you hit the nail on the head. When we, you know, when I'm doing a beaver control in a city, they just cannot believe how many beaver that we've had to take just to gain, get them under control. So when a lot of people say, well, I don't want to see anything bad happen to these beaver, and so, you know, we look at the three, the three methods that nature uses, the predation, which is a good one. When my kids were young, they used to say that was their safe way. They, they prey on other animals. Starvation, which is ugly, and usually in and around that same time, disease becomes a factor. So I think everybody agrees that predation is the best one. We like to think of that as, you know, the wheel of life. But when that gets out of balance, and with beaver in a city, the two main animals uh, that, are, that take enough beaver to actually be listed as a main predator are bears and wolves. So how many bears and wolves do they want to have in the river valley where their kids ride their bikes and shoot hoops and, and run the dog? So, you know, they've knocked the predator out and then, you know, they want to let nature take care of itself. Well, there's only two other methods if, if we don't take control. So you hit the nail on the head, Steve. Amber was talking about um, the other aspect of it, the predation of wolves and, and coyotes. And of course, that's that's a tough one for all of us when we're raising livestock. Uh, when predators come in, that can be tough to handle. And oftentimes, it's been leading up to it. It's, it's um, without us realizing it, they've been multiplying in numbers. And so by the time they reach the point where they're going to start preying on on livestock, yeah, it's not a real quick fix. So once again, if we go in ahead of time, so let me give you a quick scenario on that. If 
if uh, coyotes have been a problem, the trapper or the landowner, which is even better, starts to put out some sets to catch some of these animals in the winter time. The good thing about that is that the fur can be marketed and used for something useful instead of just discarded and thrown away like a piece of garbage. And uh, they're not they're not nursing their young. You know, it's more ethical time to be doing it. And by the time winter is finished, so if the trapper goes in or the landowner starts on this in early November, by the time he starts calving in March, he's taken a substantial number of those animals out of the picture so that the ones that are remaining can be beneficial on the ranch or on the farm. And uh, the ones that are still around have learned that preying on livestock and hanging around this ranch isn't a really a profitable business. And maybe it's better if they stay out in the bush and chase the bunnies and some of the other creatures that are out there. So that's the only thing that we can do with this. The balance of nature that we all like to uh, think about, and maybe like myself with my kids watching Walt Disney, uh, I didn't see anything wrong with that program, but we get a false sense or a utopian view of how nature works. And we come in and we change the whole landscape. And then we say, let's let nature take care of itself. It just doesn't work that way. So we end up being part of the problem and not even realizing. I think we see that when it comes to weed issues in our pastures. We see it when it comes to a lack of soil biology and our trying to control pests in in our dung pats, right? Like um, in the stomachs of the cattle. We we try to do this all over the place, and it's really interesting that we don't see the big picture and see that it's not really working anywhere. <laughs> like we have the same problem all over the place. Uh, Lynn, you had a question. I kind of feel like you answered it, but you know, my question was, is there a way to control like the beaver population without lethal control? So like without sh chopping or shooting them. So like with coyotes, uh, we can use livestock guardian dogs to control their predation and then they kind of self-control their own population. So like if you kill a stable coyote population, they actually it actually stimulates them to breed more and you end up with more coyotes. Or like if you have coyotes that aren't like killing your animals at all, if you kill them, then you're more likely to have coyotes move in that aren't aware that they shouldn't be you know predating on your animals and so then you actually end up with more of an issue than if you just use the non-lethal method of elastic guardian dog so i'm wondering like is there is there something similar that can be used with beavers or some of the other animals that you trap yeah well i i'll speak to the beaver part first um there's been all kinds of things that have been tried and uh, quite a few of them with some success. But eventually, so let me give you an idea. If, if, if beaver dams become a problem, what some counties have done is they put a long, long pipe that runs across the beaver dam, and it spills water across, and they can't figure out how to plug it. They can hear the water running, but they can't, their mind, they're not able to, as good engineers as they are, they can't figure out a way to stop that. So that might get you through the year. And it, I have seen success with that. But 
beaver are not quite as dumb as uh, they may look. And eventually they just build another dam. So what I'm getting at here is that they will figure out a way because supposing we put the population off from, from causing problems with the dam for this year. So now the problem, say we had six beaver working in it at that time. So by next year, if they have another four, now we're at 10. We're at 10 animals that are there that will be involved in damming as well as cutting trees. And so you end up at the end of the day, you, you begin to realize that population control, and this is where it, it's so difficult when, when, when we try to live in harmony, I guess it would be the word. We want to be able to live with wildlife without having to harm the wildlife. But we've taken out the habitat. That is the number one threat to all wildlife today in all of North America is loss of habitat. Some areas is, is worse but, than others. But that's the number one threat. So it's no different than having a ranch. And uh, if, if, if Steve and I decided that we were going to throw our money together and, 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 uh, and, and buy a ranch and we, we bought up some good breeding stock, then we, we start calving and, and, uh, and then our wives come and they say, well, the calves are too cute. I can't, I can't bring myself to ship these calves to be, to be made into steaks and stuff. I just can't do it. So I know this sounds silly, but stay with me for a minute. So suddenly our ranch is going to blow out the fences because in one year, those guys are going to be ready to start breeding themselves. Now, I don't need to go any further with this for you to know where we're going with it. But that's where we are. That is where we are. And so to think that we're going to manage an area of land with an animal that becomes so heavily populated, like a beaver, is not... Uh, eventually, you're going to have to use some type of lethal management. And so if that lethal management is going to be used, then shouldn't it be something that has proven the world over to be the leading, the quickest method of dispatching an animal known in the world? So in Canada, they have to be dispatched within so many seconds or you can't use them. That, that's the law here. So I'm not... I'm not interested in trapping anymore. I'm not trying to drum up some type of uh, reason that I can go off and, and be killing animals. I just care about where we're going with this. And I think the more people that become educated on this and begin to realize that we all have to be involved in this. And we have to recognize that sometimes the only true management is lethal. Now there are, getting back to that, Lynn, there, obviously there are things that we can do, but and all the times that I've been hired, Beaver, they are so smart. We even built where the dams were to discourage them from doing any more. They, they opened the dam, and then we put two scarecrows up. And I thought they looked really neat. They had a hard hat on, and they had a raincoat, and they looked really good. And, and uh, anyway, the next day when we went back, they used the scarecrows in the dam. So they tore it all down and they were actually incorporated in the dam. And the uh, power company that had hired me to come in was so mad. The water was swirling around in the hard hat on, uh, on, on one of the scarecrows that they had made. So anyway, I, I hope you don't think I'm making fun of it. But I just mean that there are methods and you may stall 
having to use lethal methods. But eventually you have to accept whether you're running a ranch or whether you're managing 10,000 acres of, of wildlife, eventually something has to, has to, you either have to work with predation or find some way. And uh, that, that's what we're up against. Yeah, it just comes <laughs> down, Ross, just to basically keeping a system in balance, right? Yeah, and, and that's, that's the exact right words for it. You know? And, and uh, when we talk about the coyotes, um, and Lynn brought up a, a good point, and this is, you know, they, they've looked at this in science, whether coyotes or wolves. When you bring the numbers down um, and you trap some of them, then it stimulates and they produce more. Well, the reason for that, uh, that's true to a point, but I've been doing this for 50 years. And what I have seen is that that's true. If you take the female, so the, the breeding couple, so supposing you're going to take the numbers down and you catch the alpha female, you take her out of the picture. She isn't there anymore to control, like she won't allow any of the other females to breed. That's why with wolves, when a female starts to cycle, they beat her up. The female will not tolerate that. She'll run them off. And so they eventually have to go and find another pack where they wander off and, and they wait in the back and they try to get whatever's left after a kill. It's not a very nice life. So that's what happens. And then if, so if the alpha female gets taken out, well then, yeah, then all the other females that will cycle, they all get bred. But that, that doesn't mean that, the, that every time you trap, that the population's just going to skyrocket. That, that's, not, that's not correct at all. That hasn't been my finding. So uh, guard dogs work really good in most cases. But with our timber wolves, if you get the average timber wolf 100 to 120 pounds, sometimes the guard dogs are the first thing that gets killed. So other methods have to be incorporated. I hope this is making sense to you guys. Yeah, thank you very much. That's a really informative answer. And I think like one of the things that uh, kind of struck me is that if we're going to have to use, like if we're, if we're talking about beaver, it's probably more ethical to kill, you know, two or three or four beavers early on than to have to kill like 20 or 30 beavers a little bit later, right? And then they've also done a lot less damage. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope it makes it. Yeah, I hope it makes sense to you guys. And that, and there's a time to be doing that. So just like we manage livestock, you know, where we we uh, we got to keep the cow and the calf together until the calf has 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 been weaned. And, and the same thing, if we're going to manage wildlife, let's do it properly. Let's not uh, just wait and all of a sudden we leave everything and there's a great big wreck. And then like that woman whose toilet wouldn't flush, who doesn't care anymore that the babies are going to starve to death because we killed the mother. And so, and that's what I mean. That That's actually my goal for the last third of my life is to be able to go in and help people to understand what to look for. And, and you can get really good at this if, you know, if, if people devote some time to it. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to be able to actually know how many animals are on your landscape? So within reason, of course, you can't control other species that are coming in or I shouldn't say other species, 
other animals that are pushing the boundaries and trying to get in or fight with another pack. But sometimes a pack of coyotes or even a pack of wolves is your best friend. They're not bothering livestock. And as long as they're there, they're going to keep the other ones from coming in. And we see that a lot with wolves. They, they haven't picked up the habit of bothering the livestock. So you don't want to mess with them just because you see wolf character. Unless they're actually killing livestock, leave them alone. Even a, a big bear, a boar, that's a grumpy old guy. Um, they're usually not the ones that get into trouble. They're well established in the area. It's the newcomers that are coming in. So if you leave that boar alone, he'll he'll manage it for you. He'll keep all those young ones, the yearlings and two-year-olds that are going to come in here and cause problems. It's just management. <laughs> I think um, one of the things that really hit me working for Alberta Trappers, so I worked in the store there. And if you haven't been in the store, if you're in the Westlock area at any point in time, go and check out the Alberta Trappers Association store. It's really interesting. But one of the things that hit me is I got to talk to a lot of the trappers that are out on the trap lines all the time and the stories they tell and how much they actually care. And from having talked to Ross, like how much, you know, you get this idea like, oh, well, it's just about killing and that's it. And I think that comes from an urban idea of what trapping is. And it really hit me the stories on how much, well, no, we want to trap humane. We don't want to have anything suffer. And that's part of what goes into trapping. Um, If we can get Steve, would you be willing to tell the story about electric bacon? Yeah, don't open the fridge at Alberta Trappers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry, I gotta. I turn my camera off because my internet is being unstable down here in the basement. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I knew that story was going to come up, but I didn't quite think it was going to go yet. But goes goes along with this, Ross, about training the existing predators not to be a problem, or if they're already not a problem, right? A lot of you know, I grew up in a in a family that you shoot everything that moves. Um, and it's still like that. I'm the only one that's not like that for some reason. But if you've got a predator in the area that isn't causing a problem and you just go out and shoot it, well, that allows other ones to move in. And then they're the ones that are usually the problem, just like you said. So this has occurred quite a few times, uh, you know, in different stories and different times I've, I've, I've been out, out and about where people tell me these stories about these predators coming in. And guardians help. Right, guardian dogs will help keep things away. We've actually right now in our our, our little calving pasture that we're in right now, uh, we've got a guardian donkey out there just to help bond with the calves, and and they'll uh, maybe keep some away. Um, we've used guardian llamas in the past for our pigs, things like that. But the most successful guardian animal that I've ever used is actually a guardian pig. And uh, most people have never even heard about a guardian pig before. Uh, so what I do is I around my calving pasture or lambing pasture or kidding pasture, whatever you're doing, um, make sure you've got electric fence around the outside and uh, turn your, turn your fencer off. Obviously Uh, go around with a couple of packages of bacon and you tie bacon to the hot wire all the way around the perimeter and then turn your fencer back on. And what happens is the wolf or the coyote or whatever comes up and sniffs the bacon and, you know, gets seven or eight kilovolts through their nose. And like all of a sudden they hate the smell of bacon. And they will stay out of your calving area, your lambing area, whatever, because that's a bad area now, right? We've had a bad experience in there and it's, but we haven't eliminated them. Now they stay out of your calving area, but they, you know, they're still in the environment. They're keeping other, other predators out of the way. Um, so very effective tool. I had a, 
Um, I've used it on and off for many, many years. I've somebody told me 20 years ago about this. So I've never really had a major predator problem, but I did have a friend who was up by uh, Fort Assiniboine and they had a pack of wolves coming under the back fence. So they had it on video, uh, this, this pack of wolves coming in and every day they were losing a calf from their, uh, their cattle, cattle operation. And they had it on video. And they decided to try this guardian guardian pig, put the bacon all the way around the outside. And instantly that day, the, the predation stopped, right? All of a sudden it was just bad territory. We don't want to go in there anymore. And I'll leave the same bacon on there for like the whole summer. By the end, it's just this dried up shriveled piece of nothing that I'm sure it doesn't even smell anymore. But to begin with it, it I think it's the smell of bacon that'll keep them out of there. So uh, fairly effective uh, uh, tool if anybody needs to you know, protect their lambing or calving area. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It would have worked on me. If you're going to hang bacon out there, get it got me right away. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing that I always tell people too, is I don't use my bacon because that's too good. I go to the grocery store and buy that cheap nitrate filled <laughs> crap. And, and that's the bacon we use. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Lori, you were up next. Hello, everyone. I just want to say thank you so much. This is my first time here. And um, I just say I, I've learned so much already. So I am one of those city people that has moved out to the country and um, and uh, we moved out to Camrose County about a year ago. And we have um, 40 laying hens. We had a couple beef cows that we Put into our freezer last fall and right now we have a dairy cow and her calf and we have 16 acres about 10 acres of pasture so my question is about coyotes so all last winter and all last summer we never saw a coyote at all nothing i was prepared for that didn't see it at all this year <laughs> yes yes they are the gateway drug. <laughs> um, so uh, this year, in the last three weeks, I've seen, of course, I think it's the same one, the same coyote. So where we are, there's a Ducks Unlimited uh, property about a half a kilometer away. And it's it seems to start over there. And then it walks across the, the grain field by our, by our yard. And then it comes to the back of the pasture. So it comes up by where the, the dairy cow and her calf are. The calf's five months old. And I don't feel like they're in danger, but I'm, of course, worried about my chickens. My chickens are enclosed right now, but in the summertime, they free range. Not knowing anything about predators, all I know is I don't want him here. He can go live at Ducks Unlimited, but I don't want him on my yard. And I would like him to know where the fences are and just not come here. <laughs> but the, the first couple times, well, the first time he was in the back, the calf actually scared him away. Um, the calf, I went out there and I was making all kinds of noises and he just looked at me like it was crazy. But the calf, the five-month-old calf actually ran him out of the yard. And then two more times or three more times, we've shot off a gun to scare him. As soon as he hears the gunshot, he takes off, but then he's back again a day or two later. My question is, is this something to be concerned about? My, 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 my logical brain is saying, 
I don't want him here because in the summer when the chickens are running around, he's going to come and help himself, he or her. But I also don't, I'm, I'm of the mindset right now, I don't want to hurt him because he hasn't hurt us. I don't want to hurt him. But if he goes near my chickens, boy, I, I, I won't hesitate. <laughs> so I guess my question is, from what you're saying is, maybe I should just leave it alone and let him, he just sort of wanders through our back pasture and then he leaves. He's not attacking anything. And my other question is, is there a time of year? Because I, I don't want to kill a mom that has babies. Is there a time of year that's better to take out coyotes? Yeah, but that's good, Lori. There is. When you speak of the coyote or him, there's seldom only one. So just so you know, there's a very rarely that there's only one. So you may only see one or you may be seeing three different ones, but they're not all together. So it's not, it, it could be this, uh, even though it looks like the same one. Yeah, if they're not causing any problem, that, that, that's what we've talked about. But because you have chickens and chickens are pretty easy prey, my thought on it for management would be to make it uh, not a very nice place to hang around. So if you can, if they haven't been there and they're coming in there now, now is the time to make sure that they don't have a nice experience while they're there. Okay. Uh, when people try to do this after an animal's already been in there and been rewarded. So if they've been coming in there and he's been finding something to eat, he will establish that. He won't. Um, so he, he has maybe hasn't taken or they haven't taken ownership of it yet. They're still investigating. They're checking things out and stuff, but they still feel like the intruder. Once they get something to eat, they're not an intruder anymore. It's theirs. This is their place. They will mark it, pee it all up and poop it. You know, whenever you see it, or if you can have, like, uh, let me think of how, if you're going to have chickens at large, you're going to have some problems. But something that will activate every time they come around that will give them a bad experience so that they'll take off. You just you just don't want them to have any type of a reward when they're hanging around with your land. And if, if you're right and they've just started doing this, you have that in your favor if you work on that now. Okay. An idea that there's a fellow named Jerry Kitt, and he is with First Nature Farms up near Grand Prairie. And what he does, he trains his dogs this way, but I can see it working with coyotes and with wolves. He'll actually, when a chicken dies, he will tie it by the back legs to an electric wire, make sure it's really hot. And then his dogs, they'll go up to go and eat that dead chicken. And sure enough, they get zapped. So kind of the same thing as the guardian pig, but they learn pretty quick the chicken hurt <laughs> so i don't know if that would work with wolves and coyotes but i'd imagine it'd be worth a shot anyway well if you can get them with the bacon so i don't like pig and you can get them with the chicken they don't like chicken you're yeah you got half of the place covered i shouldn't even make fun i just think that's marvelous i really do if, if there's a, a non-lethal means that that will work i i bring it up for the simple idea that Eventually, you have to accept that the, the time may come. And right. when, if you wait until uh, the, the time may come and then you don't know what you're doing, it can be very, very frustrating because you've waited until the crisis is there. So, But to finish up with this, Lori, just so you know, when you said 
is there the right time and the wrong time if you do have to shoot the animal or whatever. Right now, they've in our area, they've been breeding. They're probably done now with this year's breeding cycle. So, you know, their gestation, they'll probably, uh, they'll start having their young in April. In other words, the females that are going to get bred are bred now. What is it? 60, I think 60, 60 days. I have to look. Anyway, yeah, they should start. If they're bred now, they'll start having their young in April. And so then they're going to be dependent on their mother's milk probably until sometime in June. Mm-hmm. So that, that affects, you know, what you're going to do now. Having said that, if something's happening, you obviously have to take charge. You don't want to lose your livestock, but if right. you do, we, want to, we don't want to be doing that at the wrong time of the year. So maybe this is the right time if it keeps coming too close. I think this is a great time. Yeah, because uh, if they have a bad experience right now, hanging around your place, they're going to find some other place. So then uh, one more question, if you don't mind. If we were to shoot one, do we leave it there so they can all smell that and know that it's a bad place? Or will they come and eat their friend? If any animal that's starving, um, if they're starving, they will eat the other one, depending on some of the cat family, like lynx, are, 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 are they're if you kill the mother, the, the the young will eat the mother and vice versa. They're cannibals that way. It's it's not, some people think it's disgusting. It's just nature, the way it works. So it depends on the species. But normally that isn't going to detract from the pack. If you take out the alpha, uh, male or female, then you're going to have quite a profound effect on them on, on in, in the canid family because those are, like with wolves, if you if if I if I have to go in and remove wolves, if I can catch the alpha male or female, the rest of the pack won't leave. They have no direction, they have no leadership. So it has an effect on the entire pack. But I, I don't want to spend too much time on that or you get me going and we'll be here till midnight. But I I just admire that you're you know you're taking a look at it and you're you're trying to find a way to head it off ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So, Whatever the discouragement might be, um, a basket full of rocks, uh, whatever, something that you can grab really quickly, take advantage of that time, or even uh, a light that'll kick on, motion detector light, or anything like that 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 changes up. Uh, Some people, it might not work for you with chicken, but they use a sprinkler device, and it's motion activated. Uh, That really works good. Yeah, it works on thieves even. Um, people <laughs> like getting wet, so they they put that out there. And when something comes in, the motion light comes on, the sprinkler fires up, and just they don't like that place. So, but okay. just keep in mind that the day you know may come that um, they get around all your different tactics, or they find another way of managing things. Most of the predator animals, remember, are are nocturnal, so they do their rough work at night. When most of us are sleeping. I can add a little bit to that, Lori. Training the existing predators that are already there, right? That's a a kind of, we've already talked about that a little bit. Amber's talk about the uh, hanging the chicken from the electric wire. Uh, A friend of mine years ago, he was going to try and follow his herd of cattle with uh, spent hens. 
So after the layer of birds are done their life cycle, they just, you know, a spent hen just goes and gets killed. But he took a bunch of spent hens instead and took them out to be parasite control, like to dig through the manure behind his cattle herd. But this is out on 5,000 acres of bushland, right? So you take 300 spent hens and put them out in the middle of nowhere, right? There's going to be some predator issues. So I remember he talked to Fred Provenza at the time, this was years ago, so I might not have my details perfect, but they got a, uh, I'm going to say some type of chemical of some kind that he would take a, a couple of dead chickens and he would taint the dead chicken with this chemical, whatever it was. I don't remember what it was. So what it would do is when they throw it out there and when a coyote would come along and eat that dead chicken, it would give them a tummy ache. Right. So it wouldn't kill the coyote. It wouldn't, it would, it just like, Oh, that didn't taste very good. Like I don't like that anymore. And so what we did was we trained the predator not to like chickens, right? Wow. Okay. Chicken's not good. Go eat the mice and the rabbits and the, and all those, all, all the gophers. So the predator stayed in the area. So at the end of the summer, imagine on 5,000 acres, he was, you know, at the beginning of the summer, he's trying to figure out how to keep these chickens alive. And at the end of the summer, he doesn't want them anymore. And now he's figuring out how he's going to get rid of these chickens because he's got, you know, 289 chickens still out of 300 because it worked so well. Okay. So if we can train that predator not to like the the feed that you're giving them, right? So in your yard with your chickens, right? Maybe you you can't do that. But even uh, one thing that we had was just a couple of farm dogs. You know, Mm -hmm. they bark at night. They're annoying as ever at night when you're trying to sleep, but you know what? They're, they're keeping that coyote away. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had a couple of Australian shepherds, right? They're not guardian dogs. They're just, you know, in the middle of the night, they might bark a few times. Uh, We didn't have any chicken losses and they, ours were free run running around. Mm -hmm. Uh, As soon as we, we actually moved away from there and chickens stayed while we moved, we were relocating. I got another place. And for the little bit of time there, we took our dogs with us, uh, took about two weeks and all of a sudden we were losing one chicken a day or, or per wow. night. Okay. So just having those couple of farm dogs there to go, you know, bark, 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 uh, kept the, the predators away for, for us. So, and that's very similar to your situation. Like we only had, you know, I think we bought 24 hens just to get eggs and, you know, mm-hmm. we were down to 12 by the time we left there, but yeah, they, mm-hmm. uh, they disappeared pretty quick once we took those dogs away. Mm-hmm. So. I do have a, a city dog that moved with us. But um, she's she's I don't leave her out at night because she's not she's not savvy enough. She would probably go and get her get herself killed. So, but yeah, yeah, you uh, need a, we, a bigger dog, a bigger yeah. maybe two, and I think a male is important because of the smell, right? Okay. The female's urine doesn't have the same smell as the male, so that's I think another part to keeping those predators out. Great, thank you very much. I would say the other thing to think and keep in mind, like a lot of people, especially on farms, will go out and shoot coyotes. And, you you know, to me, that's kind of frustrating because I'm just like, we have a lot of trappers in our area that could use the furs, you know, the animals actually used rather than rotting out in the field. Um, Mm -hmm. I would way rather see more of the animal be used when you do have to, to kill it. So then I guess the question is, how would I connect up with someone to do that? (laughs) Yeah, what Amber knows, uh, I've tried to, in the education program, and you know, I'm a senior instructor, and so I've tried to partner up people if there's somebody in your, closer to your area, and then uh, I try to tee, tee you up, and so... 
like I said, the, the, the trick here is to uh, make friends with a person, start a relationship with them, and then try to encourage them to come in ahead of time when the fur has some value. And they're then, you know, they're, they're getting something out of it. The animal isn't being wasted. And you're having an effect on them. You're, you're having an effect on the coyotes when they, so there's, there's different ways of looking at this, but the main thing has been brought out here, I think, is to, if you can keep the group that's there and teach them that that's a really bad idea to be hanging around or to mess around, that's the best one. But eventually a female that starts to cycle or a male that's been got a little too brassy and they beat them up and they've been booted out of the pack. Mm -hmm. Those are problem animals and coyotes will not starve if there's anything left in the world that they can do before they starve to death. They will do it. So sometimes that's what's happened. So even though you've got a good group and, and that's what we have to plan for that are going to keep the rest of the problem animals out of there, eventually, and that's why I keep bringing this up, you have to look at or at least sit down and plan how you're going to attack this. When the day comes that you have to use some type of lethal management, the time to plan for that is not when you have something in there killing off your livestock. You need to have planned for that ahead of time. So either you take the training and start practicing with that and learning a little bit about it so that you're prepared and ready when that day does come. That would be my advice. I'm with Amber on that, is that if the animal can be utilized for something and we're not taking them when they're, when they're, when they're nursing, that's the ideal way to manage them. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. Uh, Verlin's iPhone, you're up next. I, um, yeah, I just was, this has mostly been about predators for our animals or about the beavers, but there's a significant issue in our area with elk. And so if you, yeah, if you were to try to bale graze, there's a lot of bush around. And if you try to bale graze too close, the very least may just come and eat the feed or they may run your cows off and eat the feed and waste it and, and that. So, yeah, I know if if there's the wolf population or whatever helps take that down, well, that's good, but it is, it's a thing. And I've even seen, I haven't had them in my own pasture yet, but I'm not feeding very far from the yard. And I know they're like 300 yards out because I see the beds out there in the daytime. So that's kind of, I'm trying to figure out how to get ahead of it before it's a, before I lose my feed. Yeah. Elk are up in the, more north of us here, they're really a big problem for them. And uh, one of the worst things is they get up on the stackyard and they piss all over the hay and then nothing. So it's even worse because all of that hay is being, being wasted. So I'm not an expert with elk, but I will tell you a couple of things that uh, people have come in and asked. Um, it, as a trapper, oftentimes we use urine and uh I don't need to tell you that the canid family uses urine to tell a whole story. When you drive into somebody's place, the dog runs up and sniffs and barks at you. And when it loses interest in you, it heads for your tires. It wants to know, you know, what the smells are and stuff. So it's a, it's a big thing to them. So I've had elk uh, or ranchers come in that are having trouble with elk. And they have the idea that they're going to use wolf pee because we keep some of that there. We actually have it from a trapper supply house. 
so that we can utilize that pee to catch problem mold. It's a long story, <laughs> but uh, anyway, they got the idea that if they sprayed that pee around, that that would get the elk so that they wouldn't come in because that's their main predator, but it's actually the exact opposite because that is one of their main predators. They will go right up to those marking spots. They will come right in. Even if they weren't in there before, they'll pick up the smell of that and they'll come all the way in there. It's uh, It backfires. So that's the one thing you don't want to do. I just want to bring that up before I forget. But other than that, the only thing um, that I've tried to recommend to people, and I have no proof on this because mainly it's predation animals that I deal with, is the same thing where motion detector lights or a motion sprinkler, which this time of the year isn't going to work um, because of freeze up and stuff, but anything that will give them a bad experience. If they've already been in there and they're already eating hay, once again, it's even it's multiplied because they've already taken ownership of it and they feel they have an inherent right to that, so much so that they'll even put their head down and they'll chase the cattle out of there in order to take over. So I wish I had the magic, uh, a magic solution with that. Maybe Steve's had some experience with that. Yeah, we've done lots of years of bale grazing. We've had issues with uh, white-tailed deer and mule deer when the quality of hay is too high, right? Because they're after the high quality legume. As long as I have low quality stuff, the deer don't seem to bother. But uh, we haven't had a, an issue with elk. Um, I, you know, I keep getting warned that there's a, there, there is a herd of elk in the area and their report of the elk down over here, but I, I have yet to have a problem in, in my feed. So having that lower quality feed out there, uh, might be helping with the elk as well. Uh, and we keep the higher quality feed in close to the yard so that we can supplement with the, with the higher quality. Um, now if you really want to bale graze and you have elk in your area, then you're going to have to do some kind of modified bale grazing. It's going to be a, you know, a combination between bale grazing and feeding uh, where, you know, make, make a hay yard that's secure out, out close to where you're going to feed. And then you can, you know, feed a week's worth of feed at a time, right? So you don't have to go out there every day and feed, but you can still put a, you know, a, a pod, uh, you know, a, a set of bales out in one spot and let the cattle have them for a week. Then they don't, have, you know, the elk don't have access to the whole place at once. So not quite as, you know, much labor and equipment savings as a, a full-pledged bale grazing, but still better than going out and feeding every day. So uh, depends on your environment, depends on the situation. We have to adapt the, you know, production practices to suit our environment. So in that case, yeah, we have elk. We can't do a full-pledged bale grazing because the elk destroy the feed. So we need to, uh, you know, adapt it, modify it, take the idea and try and make it suit your environment. So just one example, it is, it's still a lot more savings than, you know, going out and feeding every day. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, uh, that's the kind of the direction I'm going in and I don't have a secure bail yard out there yet, but I, that's, that's the, the thought process. Just thought I'd throw it out there. And, and that's what I am doing. I'm trying to do, you know, two, three day feeds. And as time goes on, I'm going to get further away from the yard, not this year so much, but I'm looking into the future. So yeah, just, just throwing it out there to get ideas. If you wanted to be a terrible person, you could go out and feed test your neighbor's hay yard and just make sure your feed is a lower quality than theirs. <laughs> I like all kinds of advice. I, <laughs> I, I've got one more comment here, Amber. 
the other thing we can look at is uh, 3D fencing. I don't know if it's anybody's ever used it with elk. Uh, I know 3D fencing, it's a way of putting up a fence around your perimeter of your field where the, the wires are not just up and down. There's also a second, kind of a second fence that's, that makes the fence 3D so the deer don't want to jump over it. Um, I've, I haven't heard of anybody using it with elk, but I'd be very curious if anybody has, if there's anybody on here or, or knows of somebody, but I would love to try the 3D fencing someday in, in that scenario. Okay. The only other thing that I did see quickly when the comments are coming up was uh, with electricity. And of course, electricity, if it's done properly, you know, we, we did a intensive grazing thing that we experimented with uh, in a very, what they call the brittle environment. And we experimented with electricity and I was very impressed with what you can do with electricity. So, but the weak spot has always been with people that I've tried to help they put up something they don't put a proper ground in and electricity only works as good as the ground. Mm-hmm. If you're not getting a good ground, then you're not getting, so they put up an electric fence, but they don't run a ground line so that when the animal steps into it, uh, they get a real good hard shock. They don't want that twice, but it, you have to check that daily. You know, anything to do with electricity, you've got to make sure that it's working properly and then it's effective. And a lot of the people that have had problems, when you really get into it and, and uh, go out and offer to go out on their land with them, you quickly realize they haven't been looking after it. And so the animals aren't getting a proper shock with it. But it, if it works on bears, bears live to eat. That's their number one function. So you know that electricity is very effective if you can use that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Boyd, you are up next. Hey, Ross, the question I got for you is, we have a pack of coyotes around our place here that don't seem to be bothering our livestock or even the neighbors. Um, we do have a lot of trigger happy neighbors. So in my mind, eventually they might get that alpha male or the, uh, sorry, alpha female. Should we be looking at maybe getting somebody in to manage that pack now, leave it alone? What's your thoughts on that? Well, if, if, if you think they're beneficial, they're not bothering your livestock and, uh, and then I guess maybe the best management thing is to leave them alone and maybe they'll do you some good. But once again, I'll repeat myself and I apologize that I keep repeating myself. I would have a plan in place. So right here at this time of the year, the coyote season for trapping is, is done February the 28th in our area. I don't know how it is in your area, but that, that means then that the trapper cannot go back and put snares or traps out on on, uh, on his land or anybody else's land when the season for that for that species is closed. So if the person wants them to trap at, after the end of February, the fur isn't going to have any value. So the person's then going to have to pay somebody to do it, and they're also going to have to get a damage control license to be trapping out of season. That's why it's really advantageous for the landowner to get the license himself. And that means then that he can control his own land. And because landowners, some of them are under the understanding that, you know, they can just put out traps and and lethal neck snares on their own land because it's their own land. But it's in Alberta, that's illegal. You have to be a licensed trapper to do that. So those are things to consider. If you have somebody in an area that 
you know, you know, is a is a is a good trapper, and you are concerned about it. Even if you're not sure you want to take them right now, I would start developing a relationship. Like, give him a good hot cup of coffee, <laughs> make your place really nice for him, so he likes coming there. <laughs> You know, we got, um, we only own about the seven acres around us. So everything's owned by other farmers and that. So it might be a good idea maybe to contact a lot of these guys and see if we can get a trapping management plan set up and a trapper out to manage the existing pack. The thing that I would mention about the, um, you know, getting your own trapping license, I think that it seems intimidating off of the start and trapping seems like it's this big intimidating, you know, whole other industry. But I would say like, I've taken the trapping course. I have my trapping license. Not that I've used it because I don't like checking traps at minus 30. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't want to go out in the cold, but you know, I skinned a muskrat as people tell you, Um, you know, it's not nearly as intimidating as you think. And I think that a lot more people, if they, were to try it would have a whole other opinion on what that looks like um you know and you don't make a ton off the furs not gonna lie there's not like a ton of money to be made there but even if you were to take those furs and maybe you you have someone void in your house that likes to do some crafting or something you know i um took there was a free course held in edmonton that was on moccasin making and i learned how to make my own moccasins and that's probably again something that i will never do myself again because I'm not crafty and working with leather is very difficult but it's stuff that you know you don't know until you know and I would say like it's well worth it to take the course and have a really good understanding of what goes into that because even something as simple as setting a snare you know you have this idea oh snares are bad because they're going to catch a dog or something but you learn about what happens with snaring and especially like some of the the snares that uh, let's say Alberta Trappers Association cells and most dogs because they're leash trained they know to stop once they're caught in a snare and that's something that you know we just don't know until you actually take a trapping course and, and learn yeah I'm and not you sure also all the laws are here in manitoba and that for a lot of like you're saying about the kill snare in alberta is illegal and that i'm not sure here in manitoba what it is but uh, yeah we're quite familiar with trapping it's just when should we be managing this right more was my idea yeah, the so if you're going to use trapping or you're going to utilize a local trapper, the season is uh, coincides with the cold. So the fur, as it gets colder, the, the the root of the fur moves further away from the flesh and further out, obviously to keep the animal warmer. And uh, so that's when the animal's fur is prime and it's marketable or usable. So mm. the time or the season is basically from November. Uh, right through until the end of February. So in some areas, the coyotes stay not too bad, a little bit longer than that. But once again, if the season has been closed by the Fish and Wildlife Division, now you have to operate under a damage control license. Now, I'm talking about predation here. Beaver, you can trap and, and manage beaver on your own land at any time of the year without a license. But if you're going to use lethal type uh, body gripping or conibear bear traps, you really want to take some training on that because you, I can tell you from experience, you will get in a jackpot. These traps are designed 
to dispatch the animal within so many seconds. So if you get your hands caught in there, you're not going to have a good day. And once Perfect. Again, Thank you very much, Ross. You, you bet, boy. Steve, do you have any comments on that? No, I'm good. I was, uh, I've been answering chatting in chat here quite a bit. So. <laughs> awesome. Um, I will say we're actually at time and this went by really, really, really fast, <laughs> which is surprising. But if we could do some final closing comments, maybe Steve will get you to go first. If you want to do just your final thoughts on this, um, maybe if you want to talk a little bit sustainability and some encouragement for producers, and then Ross will turn to you for any closing comments. Awesome. Thanks, Amber. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight. I appreciate it, as as always. And Ross, I really appreciate you being here. Very interesting. I learned a lot as well. I, I think as producers, we've got to get out. Like I said, I grew up in a family that just shoots everything. And, and that balancing the whole ecosystem thing just keeps ringing in my head over and over and has for years. I heard someone say that probably 15 years ago. And, and so whenever there is a an issue that comes up. I look at it on my ranch as a, is it a problem or a symptom? Okay. The symptom is there. It's creating a, you know, an, an issue. What's allowing that symptom to, you know, have the advantage and how do we deal with the, the, the problem that's, that's created that in the first place, instead of just dealing with symptoms all the time, right? You just keep shooting the coyote. Other coyotes just keep moving in. It's going to be a continually, you know, problem. Um, you, know, you know, beavers are causing issues, so that's a symptom. Um, we need to address the problem, not the symptom. So, um, yeah, I just want to remind people that it's not, you know, it's it's not that one individual thing that is, you know, causing. Uh, you know, it's just not. We have too many beavers. There's a whole ecosystem there that needs to be in balance. That we have to look for the the root problem instead of just the symptoms. So awesome. Thanks. I'll turn it over to you, Ross. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Uh, likewise, I'm, I'm really impressed that you would take the time to come on and, and uh, you obviously care that you're looking for different ways of managing predation or overpopulation of animals. And I take my hat off to you for that. I wish we could get more people involved. And it's not a simple thing. The coyotes didn't get where they are by being stupid. They're incredibly intelligent animals. So trying to outsmart a coyote, and it's even more so with a timber wolf, takes a lot of training. And so if you're going to look after land, at some point in time, you're going to be a lot happier with yourself if you yourself learn how to manage those animals so that you can keep a healthy population. Coyotes, wolves, all of them have an important part to play. And uh, they're, they're like Steve said, the people, the only good one is a dead one kind of a thing. And people just want to shoot them. And that's not wildlife management. That's just not the way it works. So I, both Steve and, and Amber know how to get a hold of me. If, 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 uh, if there's something uh, that you'd like to send me or some problems that I can help you with from, from email or whatever, I'd be more than happy to, to do that. And if you're in Alberta, and you're looking for uh, a good trapper. I don't know for sure if there's one in your region, but if you get a hold of me, I will do my best to try to find somebody that I can link you up with that will hopefully be able to help you with some of the issues that you're having. Thank you for giving me this much time. 
Thanks, Ross. And I do want to say, so I just put into chat and for you guys on the podcast, I will be putting it in the um, show notes for the recording. His website is northtrappingandbushcraft.ca. His wife is also an amazing videographer and someone that I absolutely adore. So she's got a couple of YouTube channels and Deb, I know you can probably hear me. So if you want to throw some of your information and your YouTube channels, channels into chat or you're, I think you changed up. You're maybe not using YouTube anymore. Um, please do. Well, I also linked in the grow YouTube video with Ross that we did two summers ago now, Ross, or was that a lot? I think it was two summers ago. Um, so check that out. So lots of information and, and reach out with any of these things, because like Ross said, it's way better to deal with these things ahead of time. It's like anything else on our farms, right? If you're trying to recover using pesticides or chemicals or anything like that, you're going to have a lot harder time than if you're dealing with it through management. So... 